Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. Dr. Michael Muhammad Ahmed is used to confronting cultural bias where he sees it and calling out inherent racism when he reads it. Muhammad is an author, academic, playwright, activist, and the director of Sweatshop, a literary movement for Western Sydney. In his latest book, The Lebs, Muhammad reinterprets events from his own life growing up as a teenager during the peak of anti-Muslim rhetoric. This fictional account, capturing the racism, anger, and struggle of young Australians of migrant heritage who subsequently found significant power in the scaring of white Australia. In conversation, we discuss the influence of Malcolm X and Bell Hooks upon the Lebs, as well as the cultural significance of a Big Mac, and how boxers and writers need to remain focused even if they've taken one too many laxatives. Hello, Mohammed. Thank you for joining me. Hello, and thank you for having me. And I'd also like to say salamu alaikum, which means peace be upon you in the language of my ancestors. Thank you. Mohammed, you grew up originally in Alexandria, and you also spent a lot of time working in your father's shop. He ran a small camping business, and he seemed to reward effort. Tell me how he rewarded that effort and how you had to perhaps demonstrate it to him. My dad was a, you know, a first-generation Lebanese-Australian migrant from Lebanon uh, just before the Civil War. They got out. So the early 70s. The early 70s. Civil so War actually... What, 70s to the early 90s. Well, that's right. And so like, to be really clear, when Peter Dutton says that um, the second and third-generation Lebanese-Australian Muslims are the mistakes of the Fraser government, what he's specifically referring to is my dad and my dad's parents coming into Australia because of policies of the government at the time, which were the Fraser government. So mm -hmm. that's the specific generation we're referring to. Um, and so, you know, when my dad got here, he was uh, uneducated, couldn't speak English, uh, didn't finish high school, was straight into the workforce, first as a paper boy um, <clears throat> from the age of 13, and then just developed that kind of classical, hardworking migrant, be grateful to be here mentality. And, um, of course, we inherited it from him. So, uh, by, you know, by the time I was about five or six, I was, you know, working at his shop. And when I mean working, I mean my brother and I would be opening his shop sometimes so he could go and do the markets. And, you know, there's like a six-year-old and a seven-year-old um, running a business <laughs> from, you know, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. And uh, we also did the markets with him, the, the Flemington markets and Preston markets. That's the great bazaar. The grand bazaar, yeah. Yeah. And so we did those markets um, as early as five and six. We loved it. We loved my, our dad. You know, I was so into my dad when I was growing up. He had the most amazing muscles. He was, so, he was like the embodiment of what I understood to be a man and masculinity, everything I wanted to be. Um, and so I loved being with him. I loved waking up at 4 a.m. and going to the markets with him, you know, and working all day and, and, and learning how to interact with, um, with customers. And I've got just quickly as a side note, you know, a lot of people recognize that I'm quite a good speaker and that I, um, and that I have quite a kind of you have a flair, a a way about you. energy, you know, and they, and they think it's because I'm an artist or they think it's because I'm a writer or they think it's because I'm like, a, I've got like a, like a politician's energy or they think it's because of my education. But I'll tell you that it's just because I've been at the markets since I was five. <laughs> so you've been you know? selling for all those I've been years. Selling, yeah, and, and I'm, and you know, like 
it's the markets, like it's the most culturally diverse place you can imagine where you have to learn every language. You have to learn how to speak with Afghans. You have to learn how to speak with Viets. You have to learn how to speak with Lebs. You have to learn how to speak to Anglos. And your goal is to sell them a product. And in my dad's case, we're going back a long time ago, you know, you're selling them broken shit. You know, you're selling them stuff that is secondhand and doesn't work. <laughs> and so you, you develop a very particular set of skills to do that which have, I think, translated quite well for me entering into the Australian art scene. So as part of the, the work that my dad had developed for us would be loading the van for the markets on Friday afternoons for Saturday and Sunday. So this is for like two boys who are, you know, five and six, six and seven, uh, and it's a full van load. Uh, and, and he had this huge warehouse in Botany Bay. And so we would be loading it, uh, which would take my brother and I about three hours quite a lot of labor. And we would always tell my dad, you know, what's the reward? What would you give us? And he used to say, you get Maccas, you know, which for a Lebanese Australian family where all day all we're eating is falafels and, you know, vine leaves, the McDonald's is like, you know, it's gold, you know, like those golden arches. I mean, that's something very literal for us about the idea that that's like the most exciting thing you ever get, you know? And so, the condition is you have to sweat. You have you, you do the work. If you sweat, you get Maccas. And I would argue, my, my brother's older than me, so he's a bit stronger than me, but I would argue we worked equally hard, you know, loading that van and busting our humps to get everything into that van. But for some reason, I just couldn't sweat. I couldn't break a sweat. But my brother looked like he was drenched. He like, you know, looked like he was, um, you know, wandering the desert. <laughs> you know, we're Arabs, so, you know, everything's... <laughs> Everything's desert-related. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so uh, we had this little scam, my brother and I, which is um, that uh, when my dad turned his back, my brother would go, <laughs> and just hock a, you know, a golly in my face, you know, and then my dad would turn around and he'd smear my forehead and go to, and go to us just, he'd sweat just a little bit. <laughs> so you get your Maccas. I think, you know, like, you know, I was... Now, as a 32-year-old man with a PhD, I think I probably would have worked out. Now I work out my, I call my dad's bluff. I'm pretty sure that my dad was going to get me Maccas no matter what, you know. <laughs> but I was really convinced that if I didn't swear, I wasn't going to get McDonald's. Did you, did yeah. you ever think that perhaps your dad was quite aware of what was going on, that that wasn't sweat? He's going yeah. home and saying, these kids are spitting at each, each other. other. They're, that, they're, that, they're that desperate for McDonald's. Yeah, I mean, look... I, when you read the lebs, what you see is that Banning develops quite a, quite a unique obsession with fast food and junk food. And so there was definitely, I think, you know, for me as a writer, that foreshadowing, that setting up that history of why something so bad for you and so, you know, it's unappealing a, it's a was very so significant. Yeah, it's a, it's a very nice reveal in the book because you're quite right. Throughout the character is regularly going out for McDonald's. He goes on a date and he goes to McDonald's and it's still very important to him. He doesn't understand why she's not enjoying McDonald's as much. I mean, the thing about the McDonald's is, is that, you know, I'm working with uh, metaphorical networks, not just looking at, you know, what the story is saying line by line and how you create clever images line by line, but looking at how the whole work is a metaphor and the whole work is trying to say something, trying to comment on something. And um, I would argue that the, the whole premise of the McDonald's is that when Banny comes into contact with a, a white left arts community who come to Bankstown to make, to make art, 
they're obsessed with the falafels, you know, and um, I, I deliberately juxtapose their obsession with falafels to Banny's obsession with McDonald's because I think the white left arts community are openly critical of McDonald's and are quite, quite critical of human beings who eat McDonald's and very judgmental of them. And I try to make the point that, you know, for you coming to Bankstown eating cheap falafels is extremely exotic, extremely exciting. And I don't have any, I, I pass no judgment on that. But you need to understand that for me as an Arab Australian who grew up on that stuff, it's not exotic at all. It's not exciting. So don't judge me for, for enjoying a Big Mac. That's actually an exotic thing that your culture brought to me. A lot of the stories of your experiences during that period of Alexandria and that early Lakemba were also captured in your first book, The Tribe, and that again features Bani Adam. Now, Bani Adam is actually, you're having a bit of a play with the reader as well. Could you explain what that means in, in Arabic? Great. So two things. Firstly, uh, the, the tribe and how it relates to the Lebs. The tribe is the first book. The Lebs is uh, arguably a sequel, even though it's with a different publisher. And um, chronologically, Banny Adam is seven, nine, 11 years old in the tribe. And then in the Lebs is 14, 16, and 19. So it's really, so far what I've been building is a, a chronology and a chronicle of this young man's life. And it'll finish with a, with a final book, which looks at him as an adult. Um, now to answer the question about Banny Adam and why I chose that name for my autobiographical self, right, in my book. Um, firstly, I'll point out that I, like the Michael Muhammad, Bani has the Benny and Bani story. So in the tribe, it doesn't happen in the Lebs because in the Lebs he's with Lebs, so he just calls himself Bani, which is an Arabic word. Um, but in the tribe, I make the point that in school, the, the Anglo kids just call him Benny and that Bani is something that the family call him. Um, so it's the same as the Michael Muhammad dynamic. Um, now, but, but why I chose Bani Adam uh, is not because I just chose a random Arabic name. It's actually not a name. You won't meet anybody in Sydney who is from an Arab or Muslim background named Bani Adam. It's not a name. It's actually a term in Arabic. And it means literally the, the child or the son of Adam. And more figuratively, it just means humankind. It's how Arabs say humankind or mankind. And so the reason I chose that name, that term for, for my autobiographical self is because I think the Arab Muslim identity in Australia over the last 20 years has been created as an extremely one-dimensional figure. You know, he's a, he's, a gang, he's a gang rapist, he's a gangster, a drug dealer, a drive-by shooter, a terrorist. And that's part of this global orientalist, uh, Islamophobic, xenophobic narrative about who we are. And so that's a very one-dimensional person. And so... What I wanted to create with Benny Adam, the character, is a three-dimensional person. And in, in creating a three-dimensional person, what I'm saying is this is a human being. And he's got all the flaws of, a human, of an ordinary human being, and he's got all the strengths and all the beauty of an, of an ordinary human being. And so one of the things you would, you would probably notice about the Lebs is the way Benny can have quite profound, sophisticated, complex, poetic thoughts. And then in the next line, he's thinking something deeply homophobic, misogynist and violent. Do you think, therefore, he's a reliable narrator? Because the, the nature of oral, well, sorry, I should say that the nature of Arabic history is, is through an oral history. And, and, and so I have been really interested in um, it being oral, that the work, the, the tribe and the lebs are part of the oral storytelling tradition. In fact, 
the tribe was adapted for the stage and it's just a poet, it's just a storyteller reciting the story. And the Lebs, I think there'll be a stage adaptation which will tap into that oral storytelling tradition as well, where, where we don't, in, Arab, in the Arab culture, don't have a history of, um, of theatre. What we have a history of is storytelling, poetry. And so that is our theatre. Now, in terms of reliability, it really depends on how you define the term reliable. Is Bani a reliable representation of how a young Arab Australian Muslim male in the year 2000 during the 9-11 attacks on New York City and the gang rapes in 2000, is he a reliable representation through the way he thinks and imagines the world of what it meant to be a leb? The answer is yes. He's very reliable. He is a very authentic representation of who and what we were. Now, is the way he sees the world and interprets the world and makes sense of the world a reliable, factual account? Absolutely not, because he's a fool. He doesn't understand anything, and he spends a lot of time trying to make sense of it. And so I have noticed that quite a lot of the criticism of the book is how unreliable Banny is. But I think that that's really missing the point, because my concern is that people are saying, oh, you know, the way he sees women or the way he sees the LGBTIQ community or the way he interprets 9-11 or the way he interprets the gang rapes, is um, wrong. It's like, and, and I'm like, yeah, it's, it's incorrect in terms of us having the most objective point of view we can have. But I'm trying to give you the perspective of a lab. And this is a very reliable perspective of a lab. But, but let's also go a bit deeper on that, which is it's a very reliable perspective for that moment because Banny does go on a journey. His story changes as he ages. That's quite deliberate and it's quite obvious. So that by the end of the book of the Lebs, you know, you have really experienced a change in an individual that you now perhaps have great hope for. Um, so I think people are missing that it's, that's an attitude, whether it be 1998, whether it be 2000, 2001 or 2005 with the Cronulla riots. He's responding in those yeah. moments. I also have to say, um, without being too precious about it, but part of that problem of the question of reliability ties in a little bit with the way we, um, we uh, treat writers from minorities in Australia. We often conflate who the person is with the writing, you know? So um, if you look at like Tim Winton's new book, which is also being talked about as a book about toxic masculinity, nobody's saying that because the men in Tim Winton's book are violent misogynists, that therefore Tim Winton is that. But there has been a conflation with who I am and how reliable I am as an individual with my characters. And it's really important, I think, for my readership to understand that I am a, a very educated creative writer. I have a PhD in creative writing. Um, I have three degrees in creative writing. And one of them happens to be a PhD. Um, and I've been teaching creative writing at the university level and as the director of Sweatshop for 15 years. Now, uh, I'm very aware of what my character's limitations are. I don't think like Banny. I'm writing a character who has particular uh, way of thinking, which is about representing him in that moment in time. And I appreciate you pointing out that the, um, the story is about his transformation, the things he learns and discovers. And there's a name for that. This is me. Trying to demonstrate to you that I'm educated in this area, that there's a name for that in literature. It's called conversion narrative. So the narrative is about a conversion, that the character transforms. 
And in addition to that, there's a subgenre of conversion narrative, which is called education narrative, because the conversion takes place because of a transformation in the character through their education, because they've learned something. Well, you've been highly informed by Malcolm X, and Malcolm X, of course, is the one who has brought this conversion you know, education process to light because of the work that he did, and he became literate being in prison at the time. Fantastic. So two points on the autobiography of Malcolm X. It was actually what my PhD thesis was about. What I was looking at is how the autobiography of Malcolm X and more broadly African-American literature can inform the development of new Arab Australian literature. And the reason I was interested in that is because I'd noticed that a lot of the young Arab Australian Muslim men in Western Sydney, the Lebs, were appropriating African-American culture. They were, they were listening to the music. They were getting the same haircuts. They were dressing like African-Americans. They were talking like African-Americans. They were walking like African-Americans. So there was something about the African-American struggle that they were identifying with. And so my theory was a really simple one. If, if, if African-American popular culture is something that young Arab Australian Muslim men can identify with and use for their empowerment, then there's probably something in the literature that would speak to our literature as well. And there were two particular discoveries about Malcolm X which really worked well for the Lebs in terms of the influence of that book on my book. Firstly, it is the narrative, the conversion narrative. So yes, it is, a, and I, I'm really impressed with how much you've researched my work and noticed the influence. So in the autobiography of Malcolm X, he goes to prison and he develops for himself a homemade education. Primarily, char he charts that primarily through reading. He reads and that's how he learns. And so it is a conversion narrative in that sense. And it's also an education narrative because the conversion happens through education. And the, the entire autobiography of Malcolm X, not just once, but the whole autobiography is about how Malcolm is constantly transforming, transforming his ideas, transforming his way of looking at the world and experiencing the world because of how often new information transforms the way he, um, he identifies. So there's that. The, the other incredibly fascinating thing about Malcolm X's autobiography is that it was transmitted orally. Malcolm didn't write it. He spoke it. Alex Haley, who's a very famous African-American writer, wrote the, um, the work Roots, which is his most famous work, um, wrote it. So Alex Haley's at a typewriter and Malcolm X is speaking it, which is not strange. Malcolm X is one of the most famous speakers of all time and one of the most well-known civil rights leaders because of his ability to speak. And so he's speaking it. So the oral tradition for African-American literature in the case of the autobiography of Malcolm X is very literal, you know? And so I was quite inspired by the oral transmission and the oral tradition. Now, it doesn't go one way. That's the, that's the most important discovery and the, the original contribution I made in my doctoral thesis. Um, that it's not just look at how young Arab Australian Muslims are copying African-Americans, but actually Malcolm X was a convert to Islam. Malcolm X and hundreds of thousands of other African-Americans, prominent African-Americans, musicians, athletes like Muhammad Ali, uh, musicians like Ice Cube, were appropriating forms of Arab Islam for their civil rights struggle. And so what I discovered is a type of cultural exchange. The Arab Muslim history and tradition had informed and empowered African-Americans during the civil rights struggle. And the African-American civil rights struggle had informed and empowered young Arab Australian Muslim men in the western suburbs of Sydney. Well, let's just look at one of those moments. I and mean, It really kicks off the lebs in many ways, and it certainly for you was a defining point, which was 1998, the 3rd of November, and the Daily Telegraph put out a front cover piece which really tapped into this issue, issue which you're speaking of, which is that 
a Leb gang supposedly was all decked out looking like African American gangsters. What? So that taps into this issue. What diff- what change did that make to you and the Lebs at that time? So I mean, there's so much in that, and um, again, I appreciate how well researched um, this interview has been from your from your end. So. It's 1998, November 3rd. The headline is Dial a Gun. Gang says it's easier than buying a pizza. And you have to realize that that article came out in the context of two huge incidents that took place. Firstly, the Kemba police station had been shot up by, by a gang that had been identified as a, as a gang from Middle Eastern, of Middle Eastern appearance. And a, a little bit earlier, the murder of a young boy from Korean background named Edward Lee, who were, and the gang who killed him were also identified as of being of Lebanese or Middle Eastern background and or appearance. So that's the context in which these Daily Telegraph journalists had come to Bankstown looking for a story, grabbed a group of boys and asked them to pose as a gang. As a gang. And they did the gangster pose in their kind of African-American uh, subaltern hype persona. So they, you know, they did the Biggie and Tupac gangster signals. They were wearing the, the you know, the, 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 the Adidas and the Fila, you know, ghetto outfits but here's the point you have to ask yourself this really simple question really simple but really important why would a gang who shot up Lakemba police station or who murdered Edward Lee expose themselves to the Daily Telegraph they wouldn't they would be morons to do that right and so what was happening is these young men were performing gangster they and and the question is why why would young minority men play up the gangster stereotype why would they tell these journalists yeah we're a gang we can get a pizza we can get a gun easier than buying a pizza why would they do that and this is the theory that comes from the united states an important cultural theorist named bill hooks um who argues that it's empowering for young men from minorities to play the beast because in the face of marginalization Scaring white people can elevate you, right? And so that's what these young men were doing. They were performing a type of gangster to scare white people because the, the white dominant culture in Australia was constantly harassing them, constantly telling them that they were criminals. And so instead of saying, no, we're not, they said, yep, fuck it. Be afraid of me. Don't go next to me. Mm. And, and I've got to say, something else that I've been discovering quite recently since the Lebs came out, I've been talking to a lot of the young women who grew up in the area, is one of the ways that it's empowering is that it can be quite sexy for the, for the community who are performing this gangster persona, mm. you know? And so they got a lot of attention from young women. Young yes, women the bad the, boy Yeah, aspect. the bad boy. Bad boy. And so, you know, a lot of young women who were going to private schools were, were going out of their way to seek out, like, relationships, temporary relationships with punchbowl boys instead of, you know, the, the kind of friendly, nice guy at their school, mm. you know? So that's what I mean by it's empowering. To, to, to play the beast um, in the face of marginalization. Not only is it something that Bell Hooks explains, it's actually a term that's steeped in cultural theory. Um, and, and, you know, uh, theorists in Western Sydney who have written about Arab Muslim identity, Paul Tabar, Greg Nobles, uh, Scott Pointing, Jock Collins, have written extensively about it in a book called Kebabs, Kids, Cops and Crime. And they use the term protest masculinity, which is the symbolic performance of aggression and power to compensate for marginalization, which is what these boys on the, on the front page of the Daily Telegraph were doing. They were performing the gangster um, 
as a, as a way of compensating for their marginalisation. But this, but this performance really built a character of the Leb, and this is what you cover in your book as well, which is the Lebs aren't Lebanese. You know, there, there may be some Lebanese, but Lebanese itself is so... Um, so broader term, but you had Iranians, Iraqis, Syrians, Indonesians, etc. And some, someone who I know has directly influenced your work is Professor Ghassan Haj. And he wrote about this issue. I just want to read this to you and just get your thoughts on it, which is the forms of underclass masculinity that were put on show were a touch Lebanese, but nothing that you can find exhibited in this way in Lebanon, unless. except unless they are Lebanese Australians. Yeah, uh, there's so much in that. So um, firstly, that quote that you just read out, I could have said that quote to you word for word by heart. Um, so let's, let's go back. 1998, November 3rd, front page of the Daily Telegraph, Dialogan. I think that's the emergence of the Leb identity, this term Leb. This was the first time we saw them in the public. These young men from Middle Eastern appearance performing this African-American gangster ghetto character, right? And when I say Leb is different from Lebanese, I mean that I think most people, when they hear the term Leb, they, th they imagine it as shorthand for Lebanese. They think what I'm saying is people from Lebanon. And, and in doing that, we construct that identity as quite a foreign menace. And that's what the journalists were doing when they were, when they were talking about the gang rapes in the year 2000, the SCAF gang rapes and the Lebanese gang rapists, when they were talking about Lebanese terrorist conspirators, when they were talking about Lebs at Cronulla who were hassling the girls and beating up the lifeguards, they were constructing it as a foreign problem. What my argument is, no, it's an Australian problem because this is an Australian group, an Australian identity. And so I don't use the term Leb as shorthand for Lebanese. I'm saying it's a totally brand new hybrid identity, which is uniquely Australian. And to quote what Ghassan Haj is saying, it's nothing you would find in Lebanon unless you found a Leb in Lebanon, one of us, an Arab Australian Muslim kid growing up in Western Sydney who's on holidays in Lebanon. That's where you would find the Leb yeah. character. Now, what's Ghassan saying? That it's a hybrid because it takes all a, a bunch of components, a bunch of identities, combines them and creates something totally brand new. So what are those identities? Firstly, there's a type of Australianness that I'm enacting as an Arab Australian Muslim male that is very similar to what you're doing as an Anglo-Australian male, right? Like if a, if a person from Indonesia came and saw us interacting, they would be able to identify, even though we're culturally quite different, they would be able to identify something we have in common that they don't have in common with us. So there's a type of Australianness in the Leb that every Australian has. In addition to that, there's a type of Arabness. There's a type of, there's something about that Leb guy that I'm talking about, which is we, we can't call it anything but Arab because it has particular components of Arabness in it, uh, Arabic, the language, right? Uh, particular food, particular ways of, um, of uh, particular traditions of getting married. Well, the religion, the prayer. Right? And the faith, like the, yeah. the Muslim faith, right? So there are aspects of this identity that I call them that are Arab, but they're not anything that are, that are Arab from the Arab world. Like, you know, Arabness in Lebanon is different from Arabness in Syria and Arabness in Sydney is different from Arabness in Lebanon. Well, well so, also, sorry, just to interrupt, but also to put that in perspective as well, you make mention of this, and you personally as well, like you're Alawite, and Bani Adam is Alawite, and, you know, there's Sunni, etc. So there is so many levels under the term of Lebanese. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a very diverse community to a point where we shouldn't even say community. We have to say communities, right? And so you've got the Australianness, then you've got the Arabness, and then Ghassan Haj, in that quote you read, if you finish the quote, 
He says, and then there's a hint of Latino and African-American subaltern hype that was made available to the libs through the mass media, right? So those three things come together, the Arabness, the Australianness, and the subaltern African-American popular culture, and they create this totally brand new thing that is utterly unique. We don't, you won't find it anywhere else in the world except here, and I call that leb. And to really hit the nail on the head in the lebs, in my book, to make the point that Lebanese and Leb are different and that I'm not using the term Leb as shorthand for Lebanese is the observation you made that actually in that time, in the year 2000, during the gang rapes, during the Cronulla riots, during the 9-11 attacks, during the drive-by shootings, you were, I was meeting and you were meeting a lot of young men who were from Indonesian background who were saying they're Lebs. Indonesian. Indonesia is closer to Australia than Lebanon. But for some reason, there was this term that unified us. And my argument is that it became a metonym. It, the word Leb became the symbol of, of the new Australian other. You've looked at this personality of the Leb throughout a lot of your writing career, and it's been expressed in many different ways. You know, you're, you're a performer, you're a playwright, you're an actor, and you've used elements of those stories going back to everything from I'm drunk and they're stoned and put them into pieces of the Lebs itself, which was also part of your PhD. Have you enjoyed the differences in, in those writing styles and interpretations that you've been able to express? It, I always find it really weird when, you know, the, the, the romantic idea of the writer, that guy that, or that, that woman that writes a novel from scratch and, you know, like they've never published anything, they've never written anything, you know, they've never done a festival, they've never done a reading, they've got no education in creative writing. They just wake up one morning and decide, I'm going to be a writer. And then they, they go in their room and they write what they think is a novel. When I say what they think, I mean it's not a novel, it's rubbish. But they've convinced themselves that that's a novel and they've convinced themselves that that's how novelists do it. When in reality, being a writer, it's kind of an ongoing process. You know, it's not like you just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be a writer, and then you disappear for three months, write a novel, and then it becomes a big hit. A more, a more kind of realistic and pragmatic way of understanding what it means to be a writer in Australia today is that you kind of have to live as a writer, and you're, const you're, you're a writer every day, and you're actively participating in the culture of writing. So you're doing interviews, conversations like this. This conversation, just to give you an example, is not just me talking about my writing. It is me doing my writing. It's part of my education. It's part of my, my research. It's part of my rehearsing of my technique, of my form. It's, part, it's a way of exercising my education because I'm re referencing and referring to particular themes and issues. So I'm being a writer right now in this conversation. Um, and every, everything I ever wrote, a, a short story or um, you know, a, a, a diary entry, um, uh, something I performed for a festival is part of a collection and a body of work that I've been developing throughout my life as a writer. And so for me, I, there's no separation between the novel, the PhD, or the short story I wrote, or the performance I did, or the panel discussion. It's all the same. And so what happened in terms of the, the nature of developing the labs, there was content I developed specifically for um, this book that I'd never developed before. Then there was content that I developed, uh, which had come directly out of my doctoral research. And it was specific to my doctoral research, looking at the development of Arab-Australian literature. Um, and then there were just stories that I already had written. And chronologically in the book, that's where it went, you know. 
Banny finishes high school. There was this climactic, significant event that took place in my life where I got in the car with these boys after we all blundered our HSC and we went for a drive. They got stoned. I got drunk. I nearly died. I, you know, I, I went unconscious and I found myself passed out and kind of just coming back into consciousness on my father's doorstep where they'd left me. Um, and, then, and then I spent the whole night vomiting and my dad was sweeping up the vomit. And um, it was a, a, a life-changing moment because that was the last time I spoke to those boys, the lebs from the school. It was the last time I ever drank anything or smoked anything. And the next morning, as a way of transforming my life, I became a boxer. So it was a very significant moment. And so I'd already written that story. And in the lebs, Banny's journey gets him to that point where he finishes high school. And he has, I need to find a reason for him to become a boxer and for him to enter into the art scene and for him to break up with the lebs. And I've already written that story. So it just goes in organically. Yeah, and it's a perfect catharsis as well because we've gone through that first you know, two-thirds of the book and, and they're hard going. At times they're exhausting, certainly the first third, which is set in Punchbowl Boys High because of some of the attitudes and expressions of those attitudes. But that cathartic moment, you see he's made a real break, a genuine break, and it almost cost him essentially his, his soul. I just want to go back to this point, though, that you know, that third of the book also looks at how he goes off and becomes an amateur boxer. You yourself, as you just said, became an amateur boxer, mm -hmm. and you also performed for Rosalind Odes in a presentation of I'm Your Man, which toured around the country and performed at Belvoir, of which you received personally some fantastic accolades from people like the West Australian, who described as Muhammad in a phenomenally persuasive performance. Yeah. What did you learn from becoming a boxer that has really helped drive your literary career? Um, everything. I'm not really? kidding. Like I took the lessons from the boxing world into the writing world, which is a very strange thing to say. Explain that to me. Yeah, I'm dying to explain. I just really want to backtrack just a little bit first. But look, you know, because you, you've, you've kind of outed me, writer, you know, academic, director of sweatshop, but then also boxer, actor. What's mm. going on there, right? This is what I think. I'm none of those things in the end. That's none of those things mattered. Like I, I, I kind of dabbled in, in a, as many kind of activities as I could, finding the thing that really sat with me. And in the end, it was literature, as being a writer. But none of those things really matter. You know, um, my main goal is like activism, empowerment for marginalized communities, you know. And so all of that stuff, boxing, acting, sweatshop, uh, writing, they're all to me not the outcome. They're the tool. What I'm, what I care about, what, 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 motive, what gets me out of bed in the morning is making this country a better place, especially for minorities. And if I was going to be even more specific, for me, for, for my minority, for, for Arab Australian Muslims, who are one of the most demonized, vilified and marginalized groups in the country, and also who, who are just going through horrendous things back in the motherland, right? Like if we look at just the last couple of days with what's happening with the Palestinian community, what's happening in, Palace, um, in, in, in Syria, what, what happened in Afga Afghanistan and Iraq, like there is so much injustice that we have to, that, that my community as a self-determined group have to correct and that, we have to, and that we have to push up against. And so that's what my, my main interest is. And, and anything else I've done, it's, it's a secondary byproduct. My main goal is fixing this condition, this, this racist human condition. And I would say that 
the reason why I really it sat with me in writing more than anything else is because I feel, I felt like there were you know there are some pretty amazing Arab Australian boxers. In fact, the one that I played in in I'm Your Man is Billy Dib. Mm. You know, he's 32 Arab Australian Muslim male friend of mine, a world champion. You know, and 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 again, there are some brilliant actors who have done some tremendous work in our community and have been extremely influential. Same with journalists like Walid Ali. So it just felt like for me that the right place was literature. That's somewhere where I felt like I could be my best and I could make the, the biggest contribution. Um, so there's that. Now, in terms of what I took from the boxing world and applied to, applied to writing, well, look, I think there's a really unhealthy attitude to writing that you could never get away with in any other industry. So in, um, in, in let's say, uh, plumbing, right? If a plumber came to your house to fix your toilet and they didn't fix it, didn't flush, and you said, it's not working, a plumber couldn't get away with saying, well, that's subjective, right? Um, and if they didn't do the job, you, couldn't, you wouldn't pay them, you know? But in, act, in, in, in literature, in writing, um, how often does a, a qualified, educated critic say to somebody, this piece is no good, it's full of cliches, it's generic, um, it sounds like a, like a diary entry, it, it doesn't have any specific detail, it doesn't say anything original, it doesn't make any original contribution to knowledge, and you're a qualified expert to say that, and the person turns around and says, well, that's your subjective opinion. You know, all writing is subjective. So it's the same with boxing, right? Um, you couldn't get away with the argument that being a great boxer is a subjective opinion. If you made that claim and you got in the ring with Muhammad Ali or Mike Tyson, you would be on the canvas really quickly. So I apply the logic of boxing, the, the skill of boxing to writing. I, I, I argue that in addition to whatever uniqueness you have, which is the same in the other industry as well, you have to be a little bit unique. Muhammad Ali and Mike Tyson are unique boxers. But, but that doesn't mean that you don't learn how to box, you know. They still have to go through a horrendous process of training. And so what I argue is that in creative writing, it's the same thing. Uniqueness is there. Subjectivity is there. But it's still a skill that you need to learn, just like anything else, just like boxing. And so what are some of the skills you need to learn as a creative writer, which are like boxing? Well, in boxing, you need equipment, right? You need your punching bag, your floor-to-ceiling floor um, ball, your, your speed ball, your, your boxing ring, your pads. And in writing, you need equipment, right? I mean, how many people uh, write in the romantic way where, you know, where they're, they're, they're sitting with a feather pen under a tree? It's like, actually, you need a desk, you need a library, you need some books, you need your computer, you need your software, you need good light, you know, you need a comfortable chair. Like, you need equipment, just like in boxing. Just like in boxing as well, you need a trainer. You know, you're not, there are no famous world champion self-taught boxers. They've got trainers. And it's the same with writing. Like, a lot of wannabe writers think that they can just work it out on their own, sitting in a room reading back stuff and saying that's some good shit right there. But actually, there are people who are qualified to train you, mentors, editors, teachers, who can teach you how to write and who help you refine your technique, just like a, a trainer helps you refine your technique. Also, like in boxing, you need the right diet, right? So in boxing, if you're not putting the right stuff in your body, you're not going to go the distance. It's like your fuel, right? So one of my trainers used to say, it's like a WRX versus a Datsun. It doesn't matter how good the WRX is. If it's got no fuel, it's going nowhere, right? So your fitness and your diet is your fuel in boxing. And in, it's the same in, in writing. You need a good diet. And, and this is the scale I use. I say um, uh, 50 Shades of Grey is KFC. And um, uh Carpenteria by Alexis Wright is the vegetables you grow in, the, in your backyard. So when I say diet, I don't mean literally what you're eating as a writer, though I would point out that I encourage writers to cut back on the snacks, you know. Um, but I mean metaphorically, 
Just like a boxer has to put the right food in their body. It needs to be nourished. Yeah, a, a writer needs to put the right food in their mind. The mm. right, they need to have the right literary diet to be a great writer themselves. So, so let me ask you this, Mohammed, to try and finish up on, which brings us back to how we began this whole interview, therefore. Did you ever learn how to sweat? Yes. Um, more than I, – I, this is the, the – the, I really appreciate this question, and it, it, it's caught me off guard, ironic. Right, that um, it's like you you um got to you got to punch through. Yeah, look, the question of learning how to sweat. Um, I think a lot of people have this assumption that because I'm very critical of bad writing, and because I've created all these analogies, and because I'm really hard on writers, that I'm an arrogant writer. You know that I that I'm pretentious about how good I am. But I wish people fully understood how painful writing is for me. Can I tell you the truth? I hate it. I don't like doing it. I find it the most exhausting, um, uh, unexciting, uh, unpleasurable experience. And I, I want to I give you an analogy. Again, I'll go back to the boxing world. But it's the idea of digging deep. I won't name the boxer. But there's this really great Australian boxer, really famous boxer, um, who is one of the best we've ever had in, in, uh, in Australian history. And so you probably could guess who it is, but I'm not going to name him. But he was so disciplined. And because he's a lightweight fighter, because he's a small fighter, he was so disciplined that he would come into the gym and he would skip for one hour straight without any breaks. And he had a clock in front of him and he would look at that clock and he would skip for one hour. And um, he, because he was a lightweight fighter, he was on really powerful laxatives to keep his weight down, which meant that quite literally, while he would do this one hour skipping warm up every day, he would literally shit himself. Diarrhea would literally be running down his leg while he skipped. And he was so disciplined that he wouldn't break his skip, even if he was covered in shit. And he was the world champion. He was greatest, one of the greatest fighters Australia ever had. And the idea of digging deep, when I say digging deep, is that that's kind of what it takes to be a world champion. You have to be so serious that you're willing to shoot yourself. That when you get in that boxing ring, you know, and you're going, you know, the first round, you're fine. You've got all the energy you need. But in the last rounds, when you've got nothing left, digging down to the to the core, to find the strength and the courage to go that one more second, you know, to win. And, and that's actually historically what it takes to be a world champion. The world champion isn't the guy that never got knocked out or, you know, um, knocked out everybody in the first round. The world champion is that fighter who came back, who recovered and who, who, who went the distance when they had nothing left. And that's what we mean in boxing when we say digging deep, going down to a place where you, where it, it, everything's gone, everything's finished, you're lost, and you have to find the strength to get to the other end, right? And that's Australia is a great country in terms of boxers. We've had so many great boxers, and that's what they all have in common is that if you watch their fights, that moment where you see them go down deep inside and come out on top. And so how does this relate to, to writing? So, you know, I talk about sweating, you know, I mean, the, these boxes sweat. We can also talk about like the, 
you know, have you ever shat yourself? It's that for me, this is the test I give myself as a writer. Every line is an original contribution to knowledge. Every line. Not every, um, every chapter or, every, or the book itself, right? But when I tell my writers, the edit, as an editor, teaching writing, when I tell them that line's a cliche, that line's a cliche, when I give them a note on every single line, what I'm saying is that every single line, if you're going to be a great writer, has to be an original contribution to knowledge, has to say something new and unique. Now, I've just got to be really clear. I don't know if I do it. I just set myself that standard. So you could open it up and say, but Mo, look at this line. It's terrible. It's cliched. It's corny, whatever. So it's possible that I'm not as good as I think I am. But what I'm saying is that that's the, that's the standard I set for myself, that every line I write is an original line and says something new. And I ask my critics to test me. Open up my book on any page, read a line, and ask yourself, whoa, was that something or was that nothing? Was that just an immemorable moment or did every line he write mean something? And so here's the thing. In order to be able to do that, whether you do it successfully or not, I'm not claiming I do it successfully, but to be able to do it, to try and do it, you have to dig deep. And it means that it takes on average, like if I was really serious, every line takes hours. And then people look at me and say, but that would take forever. And it's like, yeah, it does. It took it forever to write the lebs. I didn't do it overnight. I didn't just pump it out. Every line was exhausting and painful and miserable and, you know, metaphorically covered me in shit and sweat, <laughs> you know? But also, more importantly, it has power in every one of its punches that it throws. Thank you. So, Mohammed, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been fascinating to talk to you. You know, to keep going with the boxing analogy, I think we're only in round two. This is book two, round two. There's so much more to come. Thank you. And let's hope I don't get knocked out in round three. <laughs> Mohammed, thank you so much for your time today. No worries. Thank you. And salamu alaikum. And Mohammed's book, The Lebs, is in stores and online right now. You can also find Mohammed and the team at Sweatshop on Twitter at sweatshopws. And you can also find us at Conversations WW. This has been James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Thank you very much for listening.